last year at the end of October to roughly coincide with Martin Luther's posting of the 95 Theses on the door of the Church of Wittenberg on October, October 31st, 1517. We started a, tr a tradition here at Cross Life to celebrate the Reformation that Luther's 95 Theses ignited throughout the world. Last year, we began this yearly celebration specifically by beginning a five-year series on the five solas of the Reformation. These five solos or five onlys are considered by many to be the core truths that the Reformation recovered for the evangelical church, for the evangelical church today. Now today is going to be not a typical sermon. Um, it's kind of what Abner Chow, the president of the Master's College and Seminary, what he coined, is going to be a learning. It's going to be a lecture, not quite a lecture. It's, uh, it's going to be a sermon, but not quite a sermon. It's going to be a lecture and a sermon uh, and so it's, this is today is going to be a lerman. Like, you know, you add a, you mix a tiger and a lion together, well, you get a liger. This is a lerman. And so if you think after the end, man, this was, this was not really a sermon. This is kind of a lecture, kind of dry, kind of felt like a seminary class. Yeah, it was a lerman. You say, well, this, you said it was a lecture, but there was some kind of application points. It was kind of convicting. Yeah, it's a lerman. It's a sermon. It basically protects me from all criticism. So last year we, we had our first Lerman, our, our, our first celebration of, of the first sola, grace alone. We studied grace alone, or solia, sola gratia in Latin. And the truth of grace alone was uh, this triumph of Augustine's biblical understanding of grace. This doctrine of grace that was set forth and popularized by him in the 5th century. When Augustine's view about grace started to make its presence felt, there was a Welsh monk named Pelagius who pushed back on the view, and uh, he, he had problems with Augustine's contention from Scripture about the nature of grace. You see, Augustine uh, uh, kind of reintroduced to the church from the Bible that when Adam fell, his sin corrupted the entire human race to the degree that mankind was unable to rescue himself. The only hope for mankind was God's grace, specifically God divinely intervening to give us a new heart and the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Pelagius thought that this view put the responsibility for the obedience of, of men and women solely on God's shoulders. He responded by teaching the, the, the erroneous doctrine that mankind was not born in sin, that human beings can fix and rescue themselves, he argued. Jesus didn't die to save us. He died to be a good example to us. Pelagius contended that our problem isn't depravity, it's ignorance. And we don't need transformation, we just need uh, teaching. And so this sort of theology, this sort of thinking about uh, the goodness of ma mankind is, is known as the Pelagian view, named after the monk Pelagius. By the time of, we get to medieval Catholicism, Augustine's view of grace may have been the official church position on paper, but by practice, it was really Pelagius' view of man that had taken hold of in the church. And so the Reforma Reformation changed all that. Grace alone in our salvation had been restored to its rightful place. And so the next four solas, grace alone, 
uh, uh, after grace alone, our faith alone, Scripture alone, Christ alone, God's glory alone, or in the original Latin, sola fide, sola scriptura, solus Christus, soli deo gloria. Today we're going to consider uh, the, the second uh, sola, faith alone, or sola fide. The material principle of the Reformation is justification by grace alone through faith alone. In other words, according to the Westminster Longer Catechism, all those who come to Christ, God, quote, pardons all their sins, accepts and accounts their persons righteous in His sight, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but only for the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ by God imputed to them, Received by faith alone. The formal principle of the Reformation in Scripture alone, or sola scriptura, is that Scripture is to be understood as the sole source of divine revelation, the only inspired, infallible, final, and authoritative normal faith and practice. What are you talking about, these material principle, formal principle? What does that all mean? That comes from Aristotle, Aristotle's kind of thinking, his philosophy. And so if you ask Aristotle why something was the way it was, he would tell you that you can mean four different things when we ask for the cause or reason or explanation of a thing or a substance. In other words, uh, because can be answered in four different ways because there are four different ways to explain that because. So, for example, if someone asks what makes a table, they could be asking four different things. What is the table made out of? What is the form or essence of the pattern that makes something a table? What produces, uh, a t- uh, what produces or leads to a table? What is a table uh, used for? And we might answer those four questions with uh, a table is made out of wood. A table is made by having four legs support a flat surface. Uh, surface. A table is made by a carpenter. Uh, a table is made for eating. And the four concepts behind those four different answers would be the material cause... That out of which something is made, right? The table is made out of wood. Number two, the formal cause, the pattern, the form, the design, that that which comes together to make it a, a table. Uh, the, the efficient cause, right? Uh, it's made by a carpenter. The efficient cause is what led to what led to it becomes what it is. The final cause is the end goal of the object or what the object is good for. A table's made for eating. That's the, the goal of the table. So what made the Reformation? The material cause was the doctrine of justification by faith alone, by, by grace alone through faith alone. The Reformation was made out of, it was produced out of the doctrinal material of justification. The formal cause of the Reformation The form, the pattern, the structure, the direction that determined the Reformation was the doctrine of Scripture as our final authority in faith and practice. Without Scripture, we would not know what justification is. We would not know that it's true and right and beautiful. And so this morning we are celebrating the material cause of the Reformation, the doctrine out of which the Reformation was made, justification through faith alone. When you hear faith alone, you should immediately think justification, which also happens to be the theme of Galatians, our current book study on Sunday morning. So there's kind of a nice intersection there. But before we unpack the truth behind the words faith alone or justification, I think we need to understand the age 
the, the culture, the milieu of Martin Luther and his understanding of justification, where, what, what that came out of. The historical background of Luther was the late Middle Ages. And the, and the Middle Ages were marked specifically by three types of societal anxiety. And those three anxieties were death, guilt, and the loss of meaning. Luther's spiritual, spiritual struggle, struggle was, yes, his own, and yet he epitomized the hopes and fears of his age. He was like everybody else, but even more so. And so the theology of the Reformation was a specific response to these societal anxieties. In the late Middle Ages, there was a morbid preoccupation with death. And this pervaded all of Europe because of the preponderance of famine and plague. So severe was the crisis in crops and agriculture in the early 14th century, many people resorted to cannibalism. In 1319, the corpses of criminals were reportedly taken from the gallows of all of Europe and then shipped to nations like Poland, who were, where the, the, these corpses were eaten by the poor there. Added to this was the bubonic plague, or the Black Death, that reached its peak in England around 1340 and killed at least a third of the entire European population. So in sermons and church buildings, uh, the theme and pictures of death abound from this era. One of the most popular pictorial representations of the time was, quote, the dance of death. And death, there's these many paintings. If you go to a museum, you might have seen them before, where death is a, is a skeleton, and he's, he's dancing, and he's leading away his victims, poor, rich, middle class, the elderly, the, the young. Death was no respecter of persons. And usually in those paintings, you'll see an hourglass in a corner of the picture to remind the person seeing the painting that life was quickly passing away. The second anxiety that plagued the Middle Ages was guilt, closely related to death because death implied judgment for your guilt. So people everywhere were desperate to find some comfort for their guilty consciences. And the most radical of means to assuage guilty consciences was various companies of flagellants, and these were hardcore ascetics who moved from town to town publicly whipping themselves with leather scourges in hopes of atoning for their sins. But the most common way guilty people sought relief was through the sacramental system of the Roman Catholic Church, along with parasacramental aids authorized by the Church, aids like indulgences, pilgrimages, uh, relics, venerations of the saints, the, the rosary, feast days, uh, much of the crusade, the the recruiting power for soldiers to fight to go to the Middle East to conquer Jerusalem was based on this transaction. Hey, do you want to go to heaven? Do you want more merits? If you go to the Crusades, you get into heaven. This was all part of the penitential system where you were seeking to, to secure a, a right standing for, before God. Th those who were wealthy could pay somebody after they died to perform masses on their behalf after their death. For example, uh, Charles V left provision for 30,000 masses. 
During this time, during this era, the medieval age, the Roman Catholic Church, they were hyper-vigilant about convicting their parishioners of their sin. There were many catechisms for children and, and adults designed to bring awareness of their sin. Here's an example of questions a child might be presented with. Quote, have you believed in magic? Have you loved your father and mother more than God? Have you failed to kneel on both knees or to remove your hat during communion? These are sins against the first commandment. Have you cut wood, made bird traps, skipped mass and sermon, or danced on Sundays and holiday? These are sins against the third commandment. End quote. There was this pressure to come clean in your confession to the priest. Confess every single sin. And once that confession had been made, you then needed to perform works of satisfaction to be forgiven. Beyond all of this, there loomed the specter of purgatory and hell. The torments of both of these uh, end-time uh, realities were portrayed in terrifying detail in the art, in the sculpture, in the preaching of the day. Listen to this description of a fictional account of a man suffering in purgatory. This was written in 1529. If you pity any man in pain, never knew you pain comparable to ours, whose fires passeth in heat all the fires that ever burned upon earth. If ever ye lay sick and thought the night long and long sore for day, while every hour seemed longer than five, bethink you then what a long night we silly souls endure that lie sleepless, restless, burning and broiling in the fire one long night of many days, of many weeks, and some many years together. This is just purgatory. One illustrated catechism, pictures, inhabitants of hell, they're grieving, they're, they're gnawing at their, their vitals, and this is, the, this is the commentary below. The pain caused by one spark of hellfire is greater than that caused by a thousand years of a woman's labor in childbirth. Now, if you're surrounded by this, you go to Bible study every week and church every Sunday, and this is all you're hearing, it is going to produce a lot of guilt and fear. In addition to this, this societal anxiety of death and guilt there was another, the third anxiety, and that was a crisis of meaning. People's view of the world were being shattered by the voyages of Columbus, Magellan, Vespucci, uh, Copernicus, Galileo, Ke Kepler extended the boundaries of the universe. No longer was the earth the center of the, 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 our, our reality. It was the sun. Political boundaries were changing as the hundred-year war raged on between England and France, and, the, and all of society were asking these new questions, these new radical questions about their world around them and meaning about life. And so it was in this world, riddled with all these anxieties and fears of death and guilt and lack of meaning, that Luther was born in on November 10, 1483, in Eiselben, Saxony. He epitomized the world that he lived in, and... Because we see these three themes that really mark Luther's struggle to find a gracious God. Struck down by a thunderstorm and fearing imminent death, Luther, who was planning to be a lawyer, was on his way to be a lawyer, in this thunderstorm, so panic-stricken, so terrified of dying, he vowed to become a monk. 
But when he got to the monastery, his anxieties only grew. He was plagued with this overwhelming sense of guilt. These, these terrifying assaults of dread and despair, Luther called in German, Affektungen. And he teetered on the brink of, of insanity and he nearly collapsed. And all of this changed, however, in September 1511, just after Luther had come out of one of his depressions, Johann von Stoppitz, vicar of the Augustinian order and Luther's mentor and confessor, recommended to young Luther that he should prepare himself to be a professor of preaching and become a doctor of theology. So in the winter of 1512, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther began preparation for his lectures on the Psalms in 1513 through 1515, which were followed in turn by Romans 1515 to 1516, Galatians 1516 and 1517, Hebrews 1517, again Psalms 1518 and 19. He later remarked about this specific time, quote, in the course of this teaching, the papacy slipped, slipped away from me. As the teacher of the church, Luther devoted himself to listening to the word of God, to, to brooding over scripture. Author Timothy George says, out of this essentially passive activity, Luther was given something extraordinary to say. Protestantism was born out of the struggle for the doctrine of justification by faith alone. For, for Luther, justification wasn't just one doctrine among many, but, quote, the summary of all Christian doctrine, the article by which the church stands or falls. He wrote, quote, nothing in this article can be given up or compromised, even if heaven and earth and things temporal should be destroyed, end quote. How did he arrive at this doctrine? Romans 1.17. Romans 1.17 says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous will live by faith. And it was those words, the righteousness of God, or, or the justice of God in, in other versions, that struck terror in the heart of Luther. Until Luther's conversion, the phrase justice of God or righteousness of God meant the standard that Luther needed to meet in order to get right with God, in order to get to heaven. But all of Luther's attempts to satisfy the righteousness of God, his prayers, his vigils, his fasting, his good works, left him with a ravaging, guilty soul. And so his mood swung from despair over his own failures to a simmering rage at God. He would go to his confessor, uh, Von Stoppitz, and he would confess the tiniest sins and the, the most minuscule of sinful motives. And then Von Stoppitz would tell him, Luther, get out of here. Come back when you have real sins to confess. And then he would leave the confession wondering if his motives were pure enough. Wondering if there was a sin that he didn't confess. He said, I did not love, indeed I hated that God who punished sinners. And with a monstrous, silent, if not blasphemous murmur, I fumed against God. And yet Luther kept knocking persistently on the writings of the Apostle Paul, meditating day and night in his study in, in the tower until he says, Quote, I began to understand that the justice of God meant that justice 
by which the just man lives through God's gift, namely by faith. This is what it means. The justice of God is revealed by the Gospel, a passive justice with which the merciful God justifies us by faith, as it is written, he who, he who through faith is just shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. If there's one verse that encompasses all the major components of the doctrine of justification by faith alone, it is found in Galatians 2.16. And would you please turn there with me? Galatians 2.16. Paul writes there, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. So for the, for the rest of our time, I want to uh, pick out three three. Three words, three terms found in this verse. I want to define them, defend it, discuss how it contrasts with the Catholic Church understanding of the same terms. And those three terms are justified, works of the law, and faith in Christ. Justified, works of the law, and faith in Christ. Let's consider the first term, justified. Roman Catholic Church and the Reformers yesterday and Rome and evangelicals today disagree about the meaning of this word justified found in Galatians here and in Romans and other places. The Roman Catholic Church believes that this term justified uh, it refers to uh, infused internal righteousness. It's a righteousness that is within you. Once a person comes to Christ, God infuses a person with this real righteousness, and it's that internal righteousness that forms the ground of your justification. As the infusion of righteousness takes place within you, the good works as a result of this becomes the partial basis for your salvation, for your justification. Because, however, this internal righteousness is mixed with sin, uh, all this sin in your life, You can never have full assurance that you're going to heaven since you never know how much sin will cancel out your internal righteousness. You never know if you did enough to merit final justification before you die. Uh, We uh, Protestant, uh, Reformed Protestants or Evangelicals, we believe in infused righteousness, but we call that sanctification. We don't call it justification. And we insist that sanctification, internal righteousness that God changes us by, can never be the basis of your justification, can never be the basis of your salvation, because sanctification, as we grow, can never ever meet the perfect standard of God requires for our acceptance with Him. No matter how much spiritual growth you experience in sanctification, sanctification is never perfect in this life. And so Luther and the Reformers, on the other hand, they maintain that justification is not internal, it is external. 
It is legal. It is forensic. Based upon the imputation of Jesus' perfect life to your account by faith alone. That is, justification that is forensic is a not guilty verdict the moment you place your faith in Christ. It is a not guilty verdict that you never lose. What does the Bible say about justification? What is, how does the Bible define it? We have to go to the Bible to be the final arbiter of this, this conflict between the Protestant church and the Roman Catholic church. And we need to start with the, the term justify that we find in the New Testament, dikaio, and that word is a, derives from the verbal form of justify, sadiq, in the Old Testament. And when you find that, uh, that verbal form of justify, sadiq, it's often used in the Old Testament in, in context where a judge is legally, legally declaring innocence or guilt. And so, think about it. When a judge declares somebody innocent or guilty, the judge isn't transforming you into a guilty or innocent person. He's not making you an innocent or guilty person. He's just declaring what, in fact, is the case. So this Hebrew verbal form, that is the basis for the New Testament word, the justif justify, justify in verse 16 of Galatians chapter 2, belongs in a forensic legal realm. And in the New Testament, Paul never uses this justify or dikaio, the verbal basis found in the Old Testament. He never uses it to, deno to denote, to refer to a righteousness that transforms you or makes you actually righteous. Go to uh, Romans 8.33, and it's, it's made clear in Romans 8.33 that, you see the word again, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. So hypothetically, on the last day of judgment, if somebody were to bring a charge against you, and say, no, God, that person, that woman, that man is guilty. He, he, he doesn't belong in heaven. And Paul is saying rhetorically, who can do that if God is the one who justifies? If God is the one who's declared you not guilty, then you don't have to worry about Satan or anyone else saying otherwise. Go to Romans 4, chapter 4, 1 through 8. We see the same word justified. Paul writes, what, sh what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So does justified mean changed internally or declared righteous legally? That's what these verses will kind of help us figure out. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Not to the one who works, his wage is not counted according to grace, but to, according to what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, Paul compares justification with David and his forgiveness. And notice how quickly he slides from justification to forgiveness in verses 6, 7, and 8. 
Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the man to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, and he quotes Psalms, the, the Psalms that speak of David's forgiveness, David talking about his own forgiveness, and David says in verse 7 and 8, a quote from Psalm, from one of the Psalms, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. David's forgiveness of sin here described in verse 6, 7, and 8 is another way of speaking about justification. It's another way of being made right before God, being uh, seen right before God. And the idea is not that David was transformed by God in verses 6, 7, and 8, right? No, the idea is that in order for David to be right before God, God has to do everything. His, his righteousness, his standing before God, is out, outside anything that happened in, 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 in David. And so if I sinned against you, and I'm really guilty, and you're upset with me, and I say, will you forgive me? I sinned against you in this way. And you say, George, I forgive you. Um, nothing changed in me, but that relationship has been reconciled. It, and, and notice the, the words counted, right? Um, verse uh, 3 through 6, uh, what does the Scripture say? Uh, believe, uh, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Uh, verse uh, 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 verse 5, but to the one who does not work but believes upon him who justifies God, his faith is counted as righteousness. He, he looks at our faith, and then that faith in Christ, God considers, he counts it as being righteous. It's something outside of you. It's not to those who work, it's those who believe. What is the Reformation understanding of justification? Listen to this. God imputes Jesus' righteousness to your account through faith alone, and you have the righteousness of Christ because you're in Christ. And when God looks at you, He looks at Jesus because you're in Jesus, and because you're in Jesus, He sees this righteousness imputed to you, and then, as a judge, he declares you legally righteous based on that perfect righteousness you have in Christ. And it is this legal declaration that is the sole ground and basis for your salvation. Even though you will be a sinner for the rest of your life, your entry into heaven is the sole and only result. It's the sole result of your forensic justification. God does everything to get you into heaven. And the reason why the Bible emphasizes, the reason why this justification, this external justification, is so important as the basis of your salvation is because it protects the grace of God and the glory of God. For the Roman Catholic Church, the righteousness that is the basis of your salvation is a sacramental righteousness. You receive infused righteousness when you are first baptized, and then additional sacraments are necessary to maintain, to maintain this righteousness. Sacraments like the Eucharist, like, the, like penance, like marriage. Mortal sins, however, condemn you to hell. What are mortal sins? Mortal sins are very serious sins. They're defined as deliberately done, number one, 
They're grave sins, serious sins, number two. And they are sins committed with full knowledge. That's a mortal sin. Can you be forgiven of a mortal sin in the sacramental system of the Roman Catholic Church? You, yes, you can. And you, and, you, and you receive this forgiveness through penance. Penance is made possible by Jesus' death, but you need more than Jesus' death for forgiveness. The other half of the equation is your contribution. And your half in penance for the forgiveness of mortal sins is what Catholics call perfect contrition. And so uh, salvation is synergistic in that way. There's the merit of Jesus, His death, plus your merit and perfect contrition together that overcomes the offenses and the guilt of mortal sins. Perfect contrition or sincere contrition after a mortal sin has been, cons- has been committed must be made, however, with the right motives. But get this. You never really know with certainty whether or not your motives were good enough. So you can't have confidence that this your perfect contrition to overcome your mortal sins were good enough for God. And it is this sacramental system that is the basis of someone's salvation according to Roman Catholic theology. Christ's merit plus your merit through the sacraments, is the ground of your salvation. Now, Catholics will say this. They'll say, you know, even our merit, it comes from God's grace. You know, God's grace is the reason why that that you have the ability to accrue this merit. You know, your personal merit is rooted in God's grace. So, you Protestants, you evangelicals, what, what are you so... Uppity about this is—it's all grace at the end of the day. We believe in salvation by grace too. The Catholic Church says. The reformers, however, quickly saw that this was a paradox. Rome insisted on talking about merit on one hand, and then on the other hand, they insisted that merit was rooted in grace. The Germans called this paradox Nandenlohn, or gracious merit. But the, but the Reformers maintain rightfully that merit and grace are polar opposite realities. For Rome, grace makes human merit possible. For the, for the Reformers, grace makes human merit impossible. God's grace necessarily negates human merit. You can't just, you know, call something, call a a, a merit-based, works-based system grace. Oh, this is grace. No. Grace as a sacramental system where the individual cooperates with infused grace is not grace at all. In the New Testament, justification is not something you hope for uh, you hope for based on your inner subjective working of grace in which you cooperate with? No. New, in the New Testament, justification is the declaration of God that takes place at the very beginning of the Christian life. By its very nature, God's grace 
finds the only reason for its exercise in God himself, never in us. And so do you see what the Catholic Church and other quasi-Christian organizations that try to call a works-based righteousness grace, you know, you see what they're trying to do? You go to a church of Christ and you say, well, you know, you need to be baptized in order to, to be saved. And they'll, they'll say, well, baptism is not a work because it's God's grace that enables you to do that. These uh, religious organizations, they're not outright denying grace. They are simply diluting grace. They are simply distorting and robbing grace of its power. So let's say you, you gave me a gift. You say, uh, you know, Pastor Appreciation Sunday, and George, I wanted to buy you a gift, and here's, uh, here's this uh, leather jacket, this nice leather jacket. And um, it's, it costs $1,000, and here you go. Don't worry about it. You can pay me back, you know. Just take as long as you need. Take 12, 12, 12 months. You know, happy, happy Pastor Appreciation Day. And I'll say, wait a minute, this is this, this is this is debt. Like you put me in debt just now. This is not a gift. And you might say, well, you're the only, you're the only person I gave it to. You, you know, I could have given it to somebody else. There's a discount on this debt. Happy Pastor Appreciation Day. No, you gave me a debt to pay. You see, a gift. And debt are two different things. Even if you call the debt gift. And this is what uh, works-based righteousness tries to do. You try to call it grace. Uh, it's not grace. Even if you call it that. Let's look at the next term in Galatians 2.16. Going back to Galatians 2.16. The second word we're going to consider is the works of the law. And this kind of gets a little, a little tricky. But I think uh, you, need to, you need to understand it. And I was trying to think about where, where I could place this in our study through Galatians. And I said, I'm going to place it here in my Lerman. And so it's a, it's a good place to talk about it. So I'm just going to give you a little quick overview. In the last 20 years, evangelical scholars have, they have proposed a new theory about Paul's doctrine of justification. And that theory is called the New Perspective on Paul, NPP for short. When I was in seminary uh, 20 years ago, this was a big thesis topic that many of our students were trying to, to uh, argue against. And this new perspective on Paul has been uh, popularized by scholars like James Dunn and N.T. Wright. And sooner or later, you're going to run into Christians and churches who, who love N.T. Wright and his new perspective on Paul. And they, they basically say that the reformers got it wrong about justification. The reformers didn't understand Paul correctly. And they will contend that the focus of Galatians and Romans isn't about salvation, but about boundary markers separating Jews and Gentiles. And these boundary markers that Paul is arguing against are three, three specific markers, three specific identity markers circumcision, Sabbath, and dietary laws. The Gentiles, they don't want to do these. They don't want to adopt these Jewish boundary markers. And so Paul is saying, hey, Jews and Gentiles, they need to be one people of God. And hey, you Jews, you mean Jews, these Gentiles do not have to 
obey the works of the law. They do not have to be circumcised. They do not have to observe the Sabbath. They do not have to eat kosher food. New perspective on Paul of justification is that faith initially makes you part of God's people, and there's your initial justification by faith, and then your works contribute to your final justification. And they contend this is the justification that the Old Testament teaches, this is the justification that Paul believes in, and therefore it's not legalism. They say that uh, the, the, the Pharisees didn't struggle with legalism in Jesus' day. Uh, it was always a religion of grace. And so Paul, in Galatians here, in order to unite Jews and Gentiles into one people, he's trying to convince the Jews that the, mark, the boundary markers of circumcision, Sabbath, and dietary laws are no longer in effect. And so that's, what, that's how they define works of the law in Galatians 2.16. Not the entire law, not the Ten Commandments, not good moral works, but these specific boundary markers, circumcision, Sabbath, dietary laws, and that's it. He's not talking about, Paul is not talking about the whole law when people are trusting in the works of the law. He's just talking about identity markers to, uh, to, to see uh, who's in the church, who's in the people of God. So what Paul means when he says we're not justified by works of the law, he means we are no longer identified as God's people by these three boundary markers. We are identified as God's people by the, the initial faith that we put in Christ, and that means Jews, you need to accept Gentiles, one covenant people. Uh, Paul is not talking about soteriology or salvation. He's talking about ecclesiology and church, and church membership. So it's not grace versus legalism. It's that no longer is circumcision required for membership into the covenant family of God. By the way, the Roman Catholic Church interprets works of the law in Paul's writings as the ceremonial law. That's how they get out of that. And so both the Roman Catholic Church and MPP, they're not outright denying grace or faith. They are, again, simply diluting grace and faith. What is the evangelical response to new perspective on Paul? Well, as we saw earlier when we looked at justification, it's clearly salvation, salvation kind of language. That righteousness justification is in too close of a proximity with salvation for it to be any less than full salvation. What about works of the law? Does it mean more than just ceremonial law? Does, does, does that term works or works of the law or law, does it mean more than just boundary markers like circumcision and kosher dietary laws? Evangelicals today say yes. These terms involve, they include ceremonial law, they include boundary markers like circumcision, but it involves much more than that as well. Works of the law biblically refers to all of the law. Uh, boundary markers, circumcision, Sabbath, it includes the moral law especially, however. And the argument for that view, the right view, is really simple. Whenever you come across the words works of the law or law or works, and if it seems to imply more than just boundary markers, then this argument is not right. Go to Galatians 3.10 to prove this. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. 
How does Paul define works of the law? Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Case closed. Works of the law is everything that is in the law, not just Sabbath, circumcision, dietary laws. The, 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 the fundamental sin of the Jews wasn't their exclusion of Gentiles from the people of God. Their root sin was their failure to obey God and keep his law. Go to Titus 3.5. Titus 3.5. Right after 1st and 2nd Timothy. Same language here. Titus 3.5. He saved us, not by works we, which we did in righteousness, but, but according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Notice the word, words, works which we did in righteousness. This doesn't seem like Paul is talking about boundary markers. The focus is on the works that are done in righteousness. That doesn't contribute to your salvation. It's his mercy. It's his regeneration. It's the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Go to Philippians. And this is kind of a powerful a powerful. Uh, Apologetic against the works of the law being just these boundary markers. Paul defines what he means when he put confidence in the flesh, when he trusted in the law. Verse 4, although, chapter 3, Philippians 3, 4, although I myself might have even confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Uh, does, does the law include circumcision? Yes. Verse 5. I was circumcised the eighth day. There you go. Boundary marker. But it includes more than that. The nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. Right? There's, there's, he's expanding all of the law. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Paul's confidence was in the entire law to make him right with God. Then when he met Christ, in verse 8, what did, he find, what did he realize? Verse 9, found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, but that which is through, through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God upon faith, the righteousness that is a gift, the righteousness that is external, that never, ever changes in spite of my sin. And, then he def- and, he, and again, he just defined what law means. It's more than just circumcision Sabbath and dietary laws. And, and one more, go to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. And, and Paul does, he does apply it to unity. He says, therefore, we have unity with Jews and Gentiles, but it's really clear that he means more than just these identity markers. Verse 8, for by grace, chapter 2, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. Paul takes out the, the word works of the law. He just calls it works. Any moral, he just expands it to any moral efforts. It is the gift of God. It, it is not because of anything that you do. So it's, is Paul talking about boundary markers here in Ephesians 2? Absolutely not. 
So let's go to the third. Go back to Galatians 2. And, 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 and our last word, and this will be kind of short, really short. I know you're all kind of ache. Uh, you want some pie in the back? So we'll get, we'll get there really soon. The last term found in verse 16 is faith in Christ. Paul says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ. Catholics will say, you know, you have evangelicals, you, you look at verse 16. Nowhere does it say faith alone. It doesn't say faith alone. It just says faith. You're... You're just inserting that word. You're, you're making it up. You're just, you're these, you're just these diehard Martin Luther fanboys and fangirls. But the argument that the Reformers made is not that the word alone is in this verse or in other verses like it. The Reformers' argument is that the concept of faith alone is clearly taught throughout the Bible. A couple weeks ago, Peter and I were at George Mason University talking to two Muslim students. They said, Trinity, that that word is not even found in the Bible. I said, yeah, the word is not found in the Bible, but the concept of the Trinity is found in the Bible. The Bible says that the Father is God. The Bible says that Jesus is God. The Bible says that the Spirit is God. The Bible also says that there's only one God. So you put that together, that's the Trinity. Luther said that with respect to this verse in Galatians, verse 16, he said this, For he who says, works do not justify, but faith justifies, certainly affirms more strongly that faith justifies than does he who says, Faith alone justifies. In other words, Luther's point is that this contrast in chapter 2, verse 16, between faith in Christ and works repeated three times affirms more strongly that faith alone saves than if Paul had just said faith alone saves. The contrast is a stronger proclamation that faith alone saves than if Paul had just said, faith alone saves. Luther writes this, Since the, the apostle does not ascribe anything to works in justification, he without a doubt ascribes all to faith alone. So Catholics say they believe in faith, but just not in faith alone. They will say that their sacramental system of salvation, it starts with faith, but it finishes up with our works and merit. They say they believe in grace. It's not really grace. Okay, there's some elements of grace, but even though it might be, there might be faith, even though there might be grace, it's not faith alone and grace alone. And this is what separates us from the Roman Catholic Church. It's not grace it's not faith, it's not Christ, it's not scripture, it's not God's glory, right? It's not gratia fide Christus scriptura and Deo gloria. We both agree on those five words. 
What we disagree on is the word sola, only. We maintain that it's the five onlys that make all the difference in the world with respect to our salvation. Only, only is the difference between eternal life and eternal death. We enjoy peace with God through faith in Christ Jesus so that our righteousness, our righteousness before Him is not based on what we do. And it's this truth, brothers and sisters, that fills us with assurance and comfort since justification is fundamentally the work of God and not ours. We don't rest in ourselves and what we've done. We rest and rely on Christ crucified and risen, standing at, on at God's right hand. So when the devil comes to us and points out our sins, or when we tremble in fear as we think about the evils we've committed, we look to Him and we lean on Him for all our righteousness. And we, and we can say to the devil, and we can say to our consciences and say, yeah, you're right. I deserve to be condemned. I am a sinner through and through, but because I am in Christ, I am in Christ by faith, no one can condemn me now or on the last day. Jesus died for my, died for my sins and He was raised on my behalf. Beloved, your assurance is not in yourself. Your assurance is not in your feelings. It's not in your performance. It's not even finally in your faith. It's in Christ Himself. Savior and Lord. And justification by faith alone, it, it makes a difference in our lives because it gives us rock-solid assurance. It frees us from fear. And that allows our praise to rise and overflow from our hearts and our lips. It's been said by one writer, quote, without justification by faith, salvation effectively becomes probation, and assurance disappears. How do, you, how do we sing to a God of grace when we feel like we're on probation? Can't do it. Can't do it with joy. Can't do it with fullness of love. Can't do it with, with a fullness of heart. Nothing is hidden from God about you. Your worst thoughts, your cruelest words, your most despicable actions. And yet, God loves you supremely in Christ. And this love will never change, not even an inch less, not even an ounce less, because God pronounced an almost unbelievable verdict about your life when you first believed. He said this, justified. Heavenly Father, we thank You for grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone, and Scripture alone, Your glory alone. It truly gives our hearts fullness, assurance, and peace, and comfort, and joy. So, Lord, pray that some of the things that we considered this morning would give us joy this week, give us a 
a little more strength in our hearts to endure the trials and hardships that life necessarily life always brings in a fallen world so father we thank you for your kindness to us in history in the church in raising up weak men but weak men and women who found the, the gospel in your word. So, Father, we thank you for the gospel. Fill us with gospel joy. In Christ Jesus' name.